We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Fellas, listen up. All you ever ask for is an opportunity. You got it today. Where else would you rather be than right here, right now? The Rock Pile Report with Buffalo Bills season ticket holder, Drew Gear. Be aggressive. You have literally nothing to lose. You're a borderline football team. If I don't keep laughing about this stuff, my teeth are going to turn around and devour my brain. The Bills make me want to The more I watch Jalen Phillips from Miami, the more I think he's not just the best pass rusher in this class, I think he stacks up well against all of the other alpha pass rushers that have come out in the last six or seven years. In fact, I would go so far as to say that my closest comparison to Jalen Phillips on tape are two of the best pass rushers in the entire league right now that both happen to be all pros and they both happen to be in the same family, J.J. Watt and T.J. Watt. But stylistically speaking, in terms of how he uses all of his incredible physical gifts like burst, bend, length, and strength, the way he uses those tools is very similar to both of the Watts. In particular, there are three things that I really noticed when watching him that just scream, I am a Watt brother. Number one, his aggressive, penetrating style of playing against the run. Number two, his versatility as a pass rusher and how he sets up tackles with certain moves that then open up opportunities to counter off of those moves later in the game. And number three, how he adapts his technique against tackles that kind of have his number so that he can have more and more success against them as the game goes on. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Rock Pal Report Podcast. I'm your host, Bill season ticket holder, Drew Gear. That's my producer, Chris Krueger, and that was tonight's guest of honor, the film room analyst, Brett Coleman, talking up one of the more polarizing prospects in the 2021 draft at the position, at the defensive end position, Jalen Phillips. Guys, Iron Man style, our third podcast of the week. Hell yeah, crack a fresh one for your boys. <laughs> Take that. Oh, boys and girls, we have, uh, this has been fun. This has been, uh, I mean, I can't speak for Chris, but three. No, it's not because I can't drink. (laughs) And a week where Chris can't drink. Three straight podcasts. This is paradise for me. I love this. Here's what I'll say. I, I wish, 
I mean, I, I wish I, I... It's almost like there's a black cloud hanging over me, though. And I want to try to get it off my chest, get it off my shoulders so we can move forward. I've made it 35 years. Soon to be, I mean, depending on what day you downloaded this, I, I'm like 24, 48 hours away from being 36 years old. And it's seemingly something that everyone has had to go through at least once, except for me. Somehow I've managed to avoid, for more than 35 years, jury duty. (laughs) Next Monday, I have to call to see if I'm selected as part of a jury, which seems like lunacy to me, because I've talked to plenty of people who have been called for jury duty, not once, not twice, but sometimes three or four or five times. They've had to report multiple times. Here I am at the age of almost 36, and this is the first brush with the U.S. legal legal system from the, the position of a potential juror that I've ever had. How does that happen? I don't know. But if they, have, if they could see a photo of you, <laughs> that you would be immediately dismissed. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm, the thing is, I'm not really sure what to expect. I mean, I've seen movies, but I have a feeling this is going to be more like Ernest Goes to Jail than A Few Good Men. Right, a great movie. Great movie. I have it on DVD. Ernest goes to jail. Hundred percent. Of course you do, but you haven't seen Goodfellas. No, I haven't. God, I hate you. I mean, I have questions. I really do. I mean, do you have to dress up for this thing? And if so, does it look bad for a defendant if you're dressed better than him or his attorney? I mean, do you wear a a full suit? Should I show up in a a shirt and tie? I mean, this is what I think is hilarious about Chris. If Chris was sitting on a jury, he'd have his pompadour waxed, his pompadour hair all waxed up. He would have a tie. He would have, oh, he's handing me Ernest Goes to Jail. I'm going to go watch this. I'm taking it home with me. Do you even have a DVD player? I have to think about that. I don't. I have a bunch of DVDs, but I have no DVD player. So, Chris, as the fashionista of the Rockpile Report, what is proper court attire? You um, wear, you're the guy who will wear a tie just out to a random bar. Yeah, yeah, because no, because well, that was back in the days of trying to to uh, trying attract, to date to a date and attract women. So if you're wearing a tie to a bar, that's like a convert. Like, why are you doing this? Like, I've worn. I, you have to tell them it's because I lack the self confidence to just talk to you. I'm, so I have to seem more interesting to you by uh, with props. Yeah. Well, one of my you're essentially the carrot top of trying to atta- attract women. Yeah. Well, one of my one of my uh, best moments in a tie. I made out with a girl at Crab Apples in Cheektowaga because I wore a tie to the bar, and she was highly attracted to me. So that's what I did. Tie worked. Jury duty, I would say wear like a full suit. Dress like the Godfather. Okay. Like go go get a I want you to get a pinky ring. <laughs> here's the here's the problem though. Yeah. What if I'm dressed better than the defendant's attorney? That I feel like is a bad idea. Well, because then, you then, could inadvertently be painting them in a negative light. Well then they might make the call. You might get called in. Kind of like a reliever. <laughs> like, oh this guy. <laughs> This guy's dressed well. Like, get him, get him over here on the team. I don't know. Mark Smith, call in if you uh, know how that process works. If you can be called in off the bench as a reliever in terms of public defenders. Yeah, he, no, he's a baseball guy. Also, am I allowed to, to, to call out my fellow jurors for being obtuse or just inattentive to details of the case? I mean, is that mean? 
or is it my 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 civic duty as a member of the jury to point out that hey, I think that guy's sleeping, or I don't think that lady is actually taking notes because she's doodling. I want that put down in the minutes. I mean, does that make me a jerk? No, <laughs> not at all. I mean, I know I'm making light of this, but I understand the importance of the judicial process. Don't get me wrong. I take that seriously. The right to be tried by a jury of your peers is a key component to the very fabric of our judicial system. And it does have a vital role in our pursuit of a fair and just society. But I'm a cynic. Yeah, I'm a bitter cynic. And I just don't hold that much respect for the intelligence of society as a whole. And in that way, the concept of a trial by my peers scares the hell out of me. I mean, just spend a few hours some Friday night and see some of what gets posted to Facebook and Twitter. Between the hours of, let's say, 6 p.m. and 1 a.m., just take a look at some of the things that end up on social media. That's the crowd you want determining your fate? 12 of the 350,000 people who spent more than 30 seconds watching a girl dressed up as an anime character do a funny dance on TikTok, they get to decide whether or not I get legitimate justice? <laughs> do you understand why I, 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 I'm... Do you understand? Does it make sense when I lay it out like that why I might have some reservations about this whole process? Yes, 100%. <sighs> I mean... <sighs> This whole thing just seems like it's designed to make people dislike it. This whole process seems like it's set up to make people. And then the, the, the constant forms, the redundant questions, the online surveys and the calling of things. It seems like a giant process that's set up to make sure that the most capable people find a way out of doing it. And all you're left with is the chaff that can't. You, you know what I mean? And that again, this is me being bitter and cynical. I, I like to believe that we have a better system than this. And so in that way, if they pick me, I'd be more than happy to do my civic duty and sit on a jury and help provide a fair and equitable outcome based on the evidence that's prevented to me. But I can only imagine what's going through the heads of the people who have to leave their legal fate up to people like me and a bunch of other and 11 other random strangers. Hopefully it all goes well and I make it out in one piece and justice is swiftly carried out regardless of what the case is. Because we've got a podcast to record that night. Our pre-draft Summit of the Smart People with Greg Thompson and Bruce Nolan. Don't want to be late for that. No. <laughs> but this is it, folks. This is the final episode of our position-by-position position breakdown of the 2021 NFL Draft class. We've been doing this for years. And I've got to say that this might have been one of the most relaxing experiences I've had with the prep work. I mean, this might be the first time anyone said it, but thanks, COVID. I mean, you gave me that if there's a silver lining to having COVID for 10 days. I thought it was going to be the fact that we're picking so late in the first round. Usually we're up in the top 15 picking. I know. I or, mean, or we, or, the lack of pressure to execute, yeah, right? Or, the, or we're at 10 and then we trade back to 27. And, and it then, destroys a and pre-draft you, yeah. podcast. It, it destroys a draft night podcast. Yeah, that's when you find out, okay, we don't podcast during draft night. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Uh, I, I will say this, though. I love it because we're finishing with one of my favorite position groups in terms of the intrigue, at the, my, just my natural curiosity, my love of defensive line play, and team need. And I don't want to waste any more time, so let's just jump right into this. 
And as we have all offseason, we're going to start with the current state of the roster. Now, my numbers and Spotrack numbers haven't, re- I mean, they've made some massaging of them, but they're pretty close. $42 million, 42.6 currently allocated across our defensive line in cap 2021 cap dollars. That's 22.6% of the total cap. Where do you think that ranks in the NFL, Chris? That's between 8 and 14. Fourth. God. Yeah. You're spending a lot. And when you look at what we have, it's hard to understand the justification for it. I mean, you look at the four starters that are currently written in pencil on the depth chart. (laughs) They couldn't be more. I think what's interesting is they couldn't be at more opposite ends of the age and experience spectrum. I mean, Jerry Hughes is back for another campaign as a Bills defensive end. The fact that he's still playing while the guy that we traded for him, straight up, Kelvin Shepard. Proof that GM Ryan Gribson, he, they shouldn't have, the Colts shouldn't have fired him. What they should have done is burned him at the stake. Like, <laughs> like you would have in a Salem witch trial. That's what should have happened to the Colts GM Ryan Gribson. Not only did he give away Jerry Hughes for linebacker Kelvin Shepard, who is now coaching. He's coaching in the NFL. Not playing while Jerry Hughes is still entering another season where he's been incredibly durable. He's been incredibly impactful for this team. It just speaks volumes as to how badly that man should be jettisoned directly into the nearest burning star. Like the night, either that or the, if this is Star Wars, he would be in the Sarlacc pit. That's how this would work. He he's long in the tooth, but he still finds ways to be impactful in part because his game was never predicated on just speed or just power. He blends the two, and I'd say he's aged like a fine wine. Last year, he what what the scoop and score against Denver? That was fun. The game ceiling uh, strip sack fumble against the Jets also fun. Like he's still capable of providing you a little bit of juice off the edge, but he has started to show. And here's the thing, though: what used to make him great was his abilities as a run defender, because he was inc- for his size, he was great, and he could get out in space and cover. He put up the highest missed tackle percentage of his career last season while also registering his lowest tackle for loss numbers in a Bills uniform. The tread is essentially wearing off the tire there. He might have one last hurrah on him, but I feel like the day is rapidly approaching where we see him as just a pass rush specialist. I don't see him as an every down defender or at least a quality every down defender anymore. And the numbers bear that out. And that's sad because he's been one of the most durable players I think the Bills have ever put in uniform. Mario Addison is actually older than Jerry Hughes, if you can believe that. And up until last season was a sack specialist that made his bones winning with the same kind of blend of speed and power. As well as a savvy that allowed him to clean up nicely on uh, coverage sack opportunities. But none of that materialized in 2020. And he, too, posted his lowest number of quarterback hits since 2013. Half the sacks and ultimately half of the pressures that he did in his final year in Carolina before joining our team. He's still a dude with some upside, but Bills fans have to agree that we've all gone cold on this idea that he's going to be a game-in, game-out contributor. He's a bit piece. He's not a starter that you can trust at the defensive end position. And ultimately, like Hughes, his age means that he's not long for this world in a football sense. On the other hand, Epinesa. Dude is just starting to scratch the surface of what he can be as an NFL defensive end. 
With 14 games, but just one official start to his credit, I think that speaks to McDermott's plan for all of these rookies. They slowly worked Epines out there on the field and eventually replaced Trent Murphy with him. That that speaks to the fact that they trusted him because Trent Murphy was making $9 million. Yeah, and he's not still not even on a team. I'm not shocked by that. Are you? No, because he's up there in age. No, he's one. What he is is he's one of those guys who maybe post draft a team just couldn't find a defensive end value they liked, and they make it through the draft process and they say, okay, what do we want to do? Do we want an undrafted free agent to add depth to our team, or do we want to shell out a few million dollars to a guy who's looking for work on a one year deal? On a one year deal. And have Trent Murphy come in and be a, a bit piece. I break, can see that. Break glass in case of emergency. He's got, I mean, not for nothing, he showed in that Baltimore game that he still has some chops. I, I just, I think you got to respect it. But when you look at Epinesa, he didn't truly produce. He finished the season with just three quarterback hurries and one sack. And if you watch the tape, you saw a defensive end learning the finer points of the position while changing his game, his physical his physical makeup got changed. He lost an incredible amount of weight and had to get used to doing things that he was never asked to do at Iowa. I mean, I almost shit a brick during the playoff game against Indy when I saw him drop back in coverage. I was like, oh no, where is he going? But I'll tell you, you know who said the same thing? Philip Rivers. <laughs> Philip Rivers said the exact same thing and just checked down for a minimal gain because he's like, that's not a guy I expected to be like... I'm used to the numbers. I'm used to the film. I don't expect to see that guy dropping the linebacker depth. I'm just going to get rid of the ball because I don't know what the hell's going on. He developed a level of athleticism that I don't think. I mean, when his draft profile said that he was like a Cam Hayward, right? Mm -hmm. Which if you believe that, then that means you trend more towards a 300 pound high 290s physical, tough guy at the line of scrimmage who's going to give you a pass rush presence. He's going to be stout against the run. He's going to eat some space when he has to. And instead, what you saw was an Epinesa who came out 20-something pounds lighter than he tested at the Combine and was dropping in coverage and running around being an athlete in space. That's not what you expected, and it's also not what his skill set coming into the NFL was designed for. So it's going to be interesting to see how he translates to that. He's going to, but, but here's the problem, Chris, is that if they don't add a premier talent at this position, Epines is not going to have the luxury of being a Jag this year, you know, just another guy. He's going to be counted on to make a considerable share of plays and eat up some snaps as the old guys ahead of him on the depth chart are likely phased into more of that pass rush specialist role. His development, it could be, if they choose not, if they choose to ignore this position, his development becomes a major storyline of 2021. And then you get the pterodactyl. He's back on hand after a sophomore campaign that I was surprised to see the number. Well, the same number of defensive snaps as he did his rookie season while losing 20 on special teams. But he was active constantly. Mario Addison ate into his snap share a ton. Maybe they don't, uh, they don't believe him, believe in him well, and that's it. anymore. That doesn't sound like progress. Even though he's got some familiarity with the scheme and the staff, and his physical upside is something that they like about him because he's so big and he's got such I mean, his massive wingspan and his frame make him a good run defender. 
he has no pass rush upside whatsoever. I mean, yeah, at least he hasn't proven it yet. I, I would call him a lock to make the roster this year, though, based on what's on our depth chart, if it wasn't for one of the names they just added in free agency. And that's F.A. Obata. When you get into this next tier of players, F.A. Obata and Brian Cox Jr., Obata is a really interesting prospect for a number of reasons. First, there's the guy's story. How he overcame human trafficking, homelessness, gang life, to find his way to playing American-style football in England. I mean, it reminds me of now UFC heavyweight champ Francis Ngannou in terms of having to overcome ridiculous adversity. I mean, Ngannou tried to get out of Cameroon and get to Europe. He got caught trying to sneak out of the country seven times. And what they do to you if they find you stowing away on ships and trying to get out of the country, they leave you in the desert. They leave you in the desert. It's a death sentence for most people because they're just like, look, you you don't have your papers. We have no idea who you are. You could be any sort of nefarious individual. We're going to drop you off in the desert and good luck to you because the because that fear, right? The fear that you might die of thirst and dehydration scares people into not trying to sneak out. Ngannou got caught seven times. He went back eight. That dude, him and guys like F.A. Obata, there's <laughs> comedian Joey Diaz. I know most people are probably lukewarm on his brand of comedy, but he talks about immigrant mentality. He talks about how his family had it coming from Cuba and how he liked Stipe Miocic because Stipe Miocic was a tough son of a bitch in the UFC because his family immigrated here and he was brought up to be a hard individual. Ngannou has that, which is why he beat him. And Obata has that, which is why he was able to learn a game. Chris, there's no high school football in Cameroon. Or not Cameroon, but... um, (laughs) Over in Africa, where he came from. And then there's no, I mean, you, he found football in Europe. Impressive. And then somehow made the jump using the same road that Christian Wade used. The international pathway. And he finally carved out a role for himself with significant playing time for an NFL football team, which I think is in and of itself absurd. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll drink to that. And then there's his makeup and what he brings to the field. I mean, you talk about an unbreakable person. Cover One has a great nine-minute breakdown. If you want to go check it out, he's a blend of athleticism, power, and size that would make him seem like a defensive coordinator's wet dream. His five sacks in 2020 all came while lining up on the interior of the defensive line, which I think is interesting. Because, you know, Ken McCusick of Ravens Film Study would bring up, like, when we do his show, or I'd do his show, he would ask me, what kind of exotic pass rush looks can the Bills bring? And I had to tell him, we don't have any because we don't have enough multifaceted defensive ends to bring odd pressures, like pressures from the interior plus the linebacker level plus the defensive end position. Obata gives you that because his size is just so impressive that he's a gross mismatch for guards and centers. As Turner illustrates in his video, at six foot six, two sixty five, chiseled. Six foot six, two sixty five with abs. <laughs> Offensive tackles and tight ends can't can't really move him on rushing downs, and yeah, I mean the team set 
The Buffalo Bills said after their loss to Kansas City in the title game, they needed to get faster and more physical if they wanted to contend for a Super Bowl. Obata brings that to this defensive end room. And then Brian Cox Jr. Okay, He's one of those guys that I just can't root for. I'll say it. I'm going to say it now. Here's me flagging my, waving my bias in all your faces. And it's not even for anything that he did. For his dad. I'll see his father in hell. Okay. And accordingly, I can't help but hold something of a grudge against the kid. He's a career backup with just two starts in 26 games and half a sack to his credit. But he's played for how many teams? Carolina, Cleveland, I think now Buffalo is his third team. Counting on him to make any kind of an impact is like betting on you, Chris, to suddenly realize that Chino and loafers without socks is not a fashion statement. It's a way of life. I'd like to see you get hit by a small car. Like, not one that was... Like, when you're dressed like that, I sometimes think to myself... Like a Fiat? Yeah. Like, what if if a Fiat hopped the curb right now and just hit Chris in the back of the knees? Like, it would be the funniest thing right now. When I see you dressed like that, like, those those are the thoughts that float around in my head. (laughs) See, folks? We're friends. But... Yeah. We can still talk a little trash. I mean, it would be great if Brian Cox Jr. was worth anything, but it's not likely... It's not likely, and also, I hope it never happens. Because, again, his father, I remember being a, a, a kid and asking my dad why Brian Cox didn't get arrested for flipping off our fans. Like, angry crying after that game when we lost. Just tears of frustration. Because I was like, that dickhead gets to celebrate. Assume <laughs> me. Brandon Bryant. 28-year-old journeyman that I know very little about, and it's going to stay that way because I was too lazy to put, even with COVID, I was too lazy to put in the work to find out anything about that guy. Mike Love, guest on this podcast last offseason. He's one of those guys who was essentially fighting with Daryl Johnson for that fourth, fifth defensive end role, and he ultimately ended up on our practice squad again. Not a terrible depth piece with a little bit of NFL experience under his belt. He's going to continue fighting for an opportunity post-draft, but depending on what they do with the defensive end position, it's going to make that tougher. And then you got D-tackle on the interior defensive line. Star Latoulet is the best pure one tech on the roster. He was sorely missed last year. Everyone saw, you know, all the people who talked trash about Star Latoulet, I bet you they missed him by week three. Yep. Space Eater, not going to give you much in terms of pass rush, <laughs> but he keeps our linebackers clean. My fear with him is, can he get back into game shape? Yeah, he can. He's a professional. Here's and it's going to be interesting as we talk about we talk with Brett about it in a little bit. This concept of players who took a year off on the defensive line. What? Who do you who do you trust more to get back into game shape? An NFL veteran like Starla Tulele, or say a rookie defensive tackle who took their last year of college off and then declared for the draft. Who do you think has a better shot at coming in in game shape? Give me the veteran. They got the work ethic. I'm sure he didn't take a whole bunch of time off. I'm sure he worked out extensively during COVID. So give me give me the veteran. Ed Oliver. I mean, for two straight seasons, Ed Oliver has teased everybody with his high-end potential. And the bill, that's why the Bills took him at number nine overall. He actually had more pressures this season than the last, but finished with two fewer sacks in a season where the defensive line underwent a ton of chaos between COVID, Stars' absence. I mean, I think all of these things got to the shuffling, the new faces. 
everything came together to form this really toxic situation for chemistry to be developed. And I think that the team has to find a way to navigate that this offseason. I mean, there's already talk that teams are skipping the preseason process. Uh, the, the Broncos have guys who are saying it. The Saints have guys who are saying Falcons. it. The Bills can't afford that because I think Ed Oliver struggles last year. A lot of them, you can pin on that and say, well, that doesn't help anyone's development. I get people who are mad that he hasn't lived up to number nine yet or that he's not the next Aaron Donald. But he's not terrible. He's still an athletic, supremely disruptive talent. He just can't do it alone. But how many guys can, right? Football is a team sport. Yes. He remains so, our best playmaking three-technique defensive tackle. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if his production shoots up this year with Starr coming back. And then you have Butler, Phillip, and, uh, Phillips, and Zimmer. For most of the season, Butler looked lost in 2020. And I was shocked. I was for I was positive he was a goner come this offseason. But as the season wore on, we saw him round into a productive space eater. It's like he finally figured out how to play to his size and replace that star Latulale that we were missing. But he's a natural three technique, not a one technique. And this season, he should be better with a return to that role backing up at Oliver at three tech. And in that way, I think he has more value and upside to us in 21 than he had to us in 2020. Harrison Phillips is entering a make-or-break season. He was had an up-and-down rookie year. He was playing well in 2019 before tearing his ACL. Last year, when he finally came back, he was okay. And he flashed a little bit here and there, but his best fit is a backup one tech. And I, you have to hope that this is like a Trent Murphy situation where... It's just it takes another year to come back off that ACL tear, and he'll be incrementally better when the season starts this year. I mean, it, we're going to need him around. We're going to need him to be serviceable if Star needs time to get his sea legs back under him. And then Zimmer. Chris, we met Justin Zimmer. I didn't. You didn't? No, I never. I mean. You I, didn't talk to him? I've been in the same room as him before, but <sighs> I didn't talk to him. That's a wasted opportunity. He's actually he's actually a pretty cool guy. Yeah, because I'm such a socialite. Yeah, I was going to say, because you're such an outgoing social character. Zimmer is one of those guys you have to root for. I mean, a fourth-year player, former undrafted free agent, already on his third team. But he might be the fastest defensive tackle we have on the roster. I mean, you guys might remember, he beat half of the Ravens team down the field on Teron Johnson's pick six in the playoffs, which is insanity for a guy his size. He also showed a little bit of pass rush juice. I mean, he's not the most stout guy at the point of attack in the run, but he's smaller and athletic. So he can make some plays in space that you wouldn't expect from a defensive tackle when it comes to chasing down runs or chasing down screen passes. Tariq Hill said it. He was. He said it's... He made a comment to the press after their game against Buffalo early in the season last year that if Zimmer had been able to hit him, it would have like he was terrified. He's like that. That's one of the first times I was worried someone was going to end me, and it was Justin Zimmer at defensive tackle. So that speaks to what he brings. I feel like unless you're a rookie with a really high floor, you're going to have a hard time displacing that guy. Don't you? Yeah. So draft philosophy. Last January, there was speculation that the Buffalo Bills had more than just a puncher's chance to be the Kansas to beat the Kansas City Chiefs and make their first Super Bowl in almost 30 years. That game was a nightmare, in large part because we were met with a level of physicality and aggression that we weren't prepared for. 
specifically in the trenches. After the game, McDermott claimed that they they had learned from that and that they were going to remember it heading into the 2021 season. Now, we talked with Russ Brown about the offensive line. The other half of that equation starts on the defensive line, and it's going to be interesting to see how they navigate this. I mean, in terms of defensive tackle, this is Starla Tule's final year as a Bill, maybe even final year in the NFL. We saw what a room full of three techs with no one technique for them to play off of looked like last year, and I'm not interested in, I'm, I do not want to do that again. So with that said, there's a quiet need for a young, space-eating defensive tackle with the upside of a starter, preferably a high-end starter, even if they don't spend high-end capital to get one. Secondly, entering 2021, the Bills have a real problem on their hands as it pertains to the expected floor of production that their current defensive end group is capable of providing. Their banner carriers are old men, and they're declining, while the other options available are in need of seasoning and growth with no real established floor of production at the NFL level. That's a horrifying concept if you're a Bills fan. We have two defensive ends who might be aging out of football completely. You have two defensive ends who haven't proven they can play at the NFL level and provide you anything consistently. Do you trust that if you think we're a Super Bowl contender? Nah. Nah? Nah. (laughs) Groundbreaking analysis from the guy with the hair. Yeah, what do you expect me to be a football pundit here? They are not only going to need an, an infusion of talent at this position going into 2021, but also they need a future as they have multiple players with no long-term ties to the team, maybe no long-term future in the NFL. As last year's wave of spending showed us, UFA acquisitions don't always patch over your problems and can actually make your problems worse in terms of both cap, cap cost and cap opportunity. For a Bills team that spent its offseason promoting continuity across its roster, the defensive line for the Bills looks like the linebacker position did heading into last year, one of the weak links in what could be a championship roster. The decisions that they make at defensive end and defensive tackle this here in this draft could have ripple effects not just over the 17-week season, but potentially for years to come as the team is on the verge of making significant investments around the roster, and that's going to necessitate young, cost-effective talent still being good enough to get the job in the trenches in our front seven. In that way, the 2021 draft class represents a real opportunity for them to stay ahead of the curve in that regard. The question is, is this class capable of yielding the kind of talent that the Bills are going to need, even if Buffalo does in fact have an appetite We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. For it. That's what we're here to find out tonight. So with that, we bring in, like I said, one of the members of our draft podcasting Mount Rushmore, Mr. Brett Coleman. How are you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming and bailing out this Drunken Bills podcast time and time again. <laughs> now that you've started podcasting over at Bootleg Football, and that, that has really taken off. Like, I love, I love listening to it and hearing how you've developed your chops, not just as a guy who used to do – because the film room things, it was just you and a microphone and this – enclosed environment and it was great but from doing podcasts with us early on i was like this guy has the chops for podcasting and then to see you go out and do it and it really do well and really resonate with people i'm just i'm excited for you how how has the experience been now i didn't realize um just how fun it would be just you know Grabbing, grabbing a drink and shooting the shit about football for two to three hours once a week, and you know we we, we ramble, we rant, we <laughs> sometimes stick to whatever we're supposed to be talking about. Not all the time. Uh, no, it's it's fun though. It's basically just taking the conversations that you know we would have normally, except just recording them, uh, and it's it's been a lot of fun. No, I, I, I've, I, it's been a, I say it on Twitter and that's not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration. I'm not trying to flatter you because as Chris knows, we're both narcissists. We really don't care what most people think. <laughs> we don't really care <laughs> about the feelings and emotions of most people, which call it a character flaw. I mean, it makes social media easy, but I genuinely don't make a ton of, we, I download every Bill's podcast, a lot of sports podcasts just to support their shows. I'll support their endeavors. I'll retweet things that they're advertising. But I don't have enough hours in the day to listen to every one of these podcasts. Yours is one that I make time for. And that speaks volumes to how just the two of you have kind of built a quickly, I think, built a synergy. And just what your show is and how much I appreciate your insight, which is why you're here tonight to talk to us about this defensive line class. Now, in your show a couple, I'd say about a month ago at this point. You and EJ got together and did a podcast where you were talking about offensive and defensive draft gems. And you said something that was kind of concerning to me because you said that this upcoming crop of defensive tackles might be the weakest you've seen or the thinnest you've seen in a long time, which was odd because you figured that's usually a deep position or a, a position that you could prioritize early and find some real winners. When you talk about the depth of these defensive ends and defensive tackle classes, are they really as bad as advertised? It's uh, I'll say this in, in Bill's context, it was a weird time to let Quentin Jefferson go <laughs> yeah. because this this is not the time to do it. This is not the incoming defensive tackle class to look at Quentin Jefferson and say, yeah, we can afford to lose that. Because I love Q Jeff. I See, love Q Jeff a lot. A lot of people did. A lot of a lot of film people like yourself, Eric Turner over at Cover One. A lot of people looked at him and said he's better than his statistics. People, please know that. And then the team let him walk to keep Vernon Butler, which I find interesting and almost sort of indicative of how this team leans. 
Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott know Vernon Butler because they were part of the, the they were part of the staff that brought him into Carolina. Yeah, they were that made him a first round draft pick in bringing him into Carolina. So they're looking at him now with the return of Star Latule and Harrison Phillips, and we've built some depth. They're going to put him back at three tech where he probably belonged. But that's still like Quentin Jefferson has proven that his pass rush win rate is high, that he can do a lot of nice things for you as a pass rusher. Vernon Butler has one good season under his belt and one year where he for the Bills in 2020 where he looked lost. He looked lost for most yeah. of the season. So it just seems suspect in terms of decision making that they kept him instead of Quentin Jefferson. And I don't know. I just I would rather have them have another pick that they don't have to spend on a weak defensive tackle class when we got to replace Levi Wallace. You know, we got to keep building depth. Like, again, this team doesn't have a lot of needs, but they still I I, I want to throw two picks at outside corner <laughs> just to make sure that Levi Wallace doesn't really play. Uh, you could probably look at like an Elijah Molden at nickel it, it, to, to replace Taron Johnson. Not that Taron Johnson's like terrible, but I, I for a team that plays nickel 90% of the time, you need to have an elite one. And I don't consider him to be an elite nickel. Like the, the safeties are fine, but you could still probably use some youth there just in case. <laughs> um, they somehow got Milano back, but again, I, you need edge depth. Like there, there's, there's so many depth things that they need on defense that I would rather them not have to spend one of those crucial picks to get depth when they already had depth at defensive tackle. Like I feel like they're just kind of filling in one hole and then digging another off, off to the side. And it's like, you don't need to do that. Like just <laughs> save, save your assets. Well, yeah. Nope. And that's one of those things. And maybe it was a cost thing. I don't know. I just, I, they probably figured they needed the cap space. That's the only thing I can think. But so in that, in with that in mind, when you look at the depth of this defensive end class and the defensive end tackle class, there's no defensive end pegged as a lock for the top ten. In the first time, to me, Chris, when's the last time you you can think about that? I mean, Chase Young, Miles Garrett, Chubb, we, Chubb. Yeah. We can go on down the line and find a draft where somewhere in the top ten there is a defensive end that you know is going to be taken there. This might be the first year in over a decade where that's not the case. Do you agree with that approach, or do you think that's more based on need, or is that indicative that this is a weak defensive end class? And see, what what's interesting about it is I don't think it's a weak class. There's just not that one guy. It seems like every single year there's always been like, oh, here's the next generational prospect. You know, here's some other member of the Bosa family. Here's Miles Garrett. Uh, you know, here's Chubb. Like, there's always been like that guaranteed guy. And this year, I think the most talented edge is Jalen Phillips, who I think it, tape grade wise, you could argue is just barely under those top guys. But there's the concussion issue. So naturally, he's probably going to drop out of the top 10. But the thing is, there's depth there. There's not the top end, but there's more depth in this defensive end class than in most defensive end classes. You look at number two through like number eight or nine, and there's quality players. Joe Tryon, um, 
I, I look at uh, Aziz Ojolari, who in certain systems can be really productive. Uh, some people project Micah Parsons as an edge. Like I'm, I'm looking through my my rankings right now, which, by the way, Parsons, I'm, I, I don't really know what to think of him yet. But like <laughs> right now, I, I have Jalen Phillips as my top tier. He's the only guy I have in tier one. But tier two alone is Joe Tryon, Peyton Turner, Quiddy Pay, Ronnie Perkins, Aziz, Aziz Ojolari, excuse me, and Jason Owe. All of those guys are justifiable first-round picks. So it's not that it's a, a bad edge class when there's seven guys that could go in the first round. It's just that there's not that one that kind of anchors the class. That's fair. That, that, that is fair. And I guess when you look at the class, and would it be fair to say that the defensive end group, which is cardinal in the minds of a lot of Bills fans because, as we talked about before we brought you in, the combination of age – and lack of proven ability from our current defensive ends, it, it makes it something of a sticking point. So th- that is kind of frightening. When I hear that, well, you've got these guys with upside, just no blue chippers. It feels like the wrong year to trying to try to be fishing for the next answer for your defensive end woes, doesn't it? Well, I suppose it depends because there are, there are three guys specifically that I think have blue chip potential based on physical ability and everything like that. You could argue a fourth depending on how high you are on Quiddy Pay. I, I think that's more role dependent personally, but Jalen Phillips, Joe Tryon, Peyton Turner all scream potential all pro to me. Like screaming, like Peyton Turner, you you put his profile up against Cam Jordan, damn near identical. Well, here's what uh, I love. I put him in my list of uh, – see, again, this is why I don't send you prep sheets because you're a professional. You don't need them. Peyton Turner is <laughs> one of the players that I have pegged to ask you specifically about. Senior out of Houston, he has that size-speed size combination of 270 pounds but a little bit of burst. He, out of all the guys that I looked at – Just looking at their draft profiles, I see a guy who I'm not seeing pegged by most people as a bona fide first round draft pick who has some size, some athleticism, a good RAS score, and he's 270 pounds. That to me screams 4-3 defensive end, right? Oh, absolutely. But the fact that he has so much experience standing up as well, and he really doesn't lose anything in his first step when he's coming out of a two-point stance versus a three or a four, like he's explosive regardless, means that you can do some kind of wild stuff with him if you really want to. Like to me, he he is the player that this time last year people thought A.J. Epinesa was. Like in, in terms of better bend, better length, better strength. Like he, again, the Cam Jordan comp I know is lofty because Cam Jordan's a Hall of Famer. He reminds me a lot of Cam Jordan. And Joe Tryon might be there after Peyton Turner because Peyton Turner, I think there's a legit chance he goes in like the top 20 to 25 picks. Like you guys might not even get him. Uh, Tryon, I think specifically might actually be there. And he's another guy where it's like you want to stand him up. You want to play with his hand in the dirt. He's got pocket crushing ability, which they tend to prioritize in Buffalo. They want to condense pockets, you know, squeeze quarterbacks in there and kind of cage him in. He can do that. He's not just a speed rusher. A little bit more versatile than a, than a guy like Owe or Ojolari in that in that sense. Um, 
you know, plays the run with intensity, completely remade his body this offseason as well. Like the whole like best shape of his life thing. Like, no, they actually mean it with him. Like he changed his diet, changed his workout regimen because he didn't play last season. So he just kind of, you know, took this last year to transform himself. And I'll tell you what, if, if physically he is better than he was on tape in 2019, that is a horrifying thought because he's one of the only human beings that I saw push Penny Sewell backwards. That's impressive because Penny Sewell is a monster. He's a bona fide animal. Now, this is one thing I find interesting when it comes to the defensive line prospects in this draft. Quarterbacks and wide receivers are slated to go fairly early in this draft. We could see a start to the first round that sees four consecutive quarterbacks drafted. I mean, if Arizona's, uh, if Atlanta's feeling froggy and they decide to take uh, Kyle Pitts at tight end, no one would balk at it because people seem to be in love with him. Not me, because I watch people draft tight ends in the. Or though maybe it's just the Lions. Maybe just the well, Lions. Well, you're, all, you're also a Bama fan. You're you're not allowed to like Gators. <laughs> it's not just that. It's that I've watched teams like the Ravens and I've watched teams like the Lions try to draft first round tight ends and have it blow up in their faces while second, third, fourth round prospects outplay those guys. It just seems like it's very hard to get the same value out of a first-round tight end. And maybe Kyle Pitts is that rare, maybe he's the rare outlier. But so in that way, quarterbacks, wide receivers, tight ends. When you factor in a Penny Sewell, a couple of the other offensive tackles who are going to go early, a Jamar Chase, uh, <laughs> Kyle Pitts. Probably. Probably Devonta Smith as well. Devonta Smith's out there. You're talking about a top 10 that really doesn't leave a lot of room for these defensive talents. But based on how deep they are, so you'd think in your mind there could be a slide in the works. Maybe some of these players are going to work on the boards. And I saw some of that early on in this draft process. Different draft pundits talking about how there was guys talking about, oh, Phillips could fall to Buffalo at 30. In my and this mock draft, and which is why I hate mock drafts, but our, but our listeners, because they love us and they hate me, uh, keep tagging me in them on social media, which is hilarious. Uh, in fact, hashtag Drew hates mock drafts was a thing for like a day or two. <laughs> yeah, it's like fifty notifications, and it's just people tagging me in mock drafts. It's hilarious. So, with that said, if they're really the classes are that thin, and there is is legitimate talent. It's just it's not very deep. That slide may not occur. So do where do you see it for the Bills sitting at 30? What's the – you have your tiered system. You have Jalen Phillips at the top. You have Quipay and some of the other names, your Peyton Turner. You have them in your tier two. Where does – does Buffalo have to be aggressive in order to try to land one of these top-tier defensive end prospects? You know, that's tough to say because let's just go with the premise that the only defensive player to go, to go in the top 10 is a corner, whether it's, you know, Dallas or, or whatever because of, of all the off. You know, the only real teams that I could see going after edge rusher are, you know, Giants, Vikings. So there's two. The Patriots aren't going to take one. The Cardinals definitely aren't going to take one. The Raiders – Probably not. I, I I don't think they would. Dolphins 
knowing them, probably not. I mean, I would, but I don't think they would. Like, I just I don't see a whole lot of teams that might prioritize edge, even though there's like a lot of really good ones. And so theoretically, yeah, it's possible that that without even making any sort of moves, you could get a Phillips or a Tryon or a Turner at 30 just because there might be four or five teams total that even might take an edge to begin with. and, And more likely than not, not all of them will. So no matter what, I think you're kind of in a pretty commanding position. The the only place that I might consider trading up to would be like if all the quarterbacks are gone and the Bears want to move down to get picks, you go up to 20 just to beat out Indianapolis and, and beating out the Titans who had a horrible pass rush last year, you know, beating out the Jets who might want to pair somebody with Carl Lawson. Like you might want to get ahead of those teams. But other than that, you're you're kind of good. Well, I like the sound of that, because I'll tell you when I before we talk Bill's specific angles, I got one more class question for you. I have a note here. And Chris, you know, I love to ramble. I love this freeform thing that we do, and it's just a conversational podcast. But sometimes there's important questions that I've got to remind myself to ask. I've seen multiple major analysts. I've looked at, I've, I've listened to you, I've listened to your podcast. I've seen a lot of different places claiming that there aren't any defensive tackles who, never mind team need, never mind some team that might reach that there aren't any defensive tackles in the top 30 of this draft class. Do you agree with that assessment? Oh, man. I've seen it talked about how that there aren't any defensive tackles worthy, truly worthy, just based on tape and talent of going in the top 30. Christian Barmore, I'm an Alabama guy. He probably will get overdrafted because he's – probably the best pass rusher of the defensive tackles in this class, according to the draft community as a whole, he might get overdrafted by somebody. But that doesn't mean that he deserves to be a first-round draft pick. He might just be going there. Uh, because I'm, I'm kind of doing some rough math in my head just looking at all my position rankings. And, yeah, I think that's right. I, I don't think any of these guys like if I had a true big board, which all I have is position rankings, not a true big board because it's hard to kind of stack everybody against each other, comparing apples to oranges for guys w- with like identical grades overall. But if I did have one, unlikely that that I, either of my top two defensive tackles, which is Levi Onuzurike or Christian Barmore, would be in the top thirty. Like there, there is no Quinnen Williams this year. There is no you know, amazing five technique prospect like DeForest Buckner or Javon Kinlaw. There's no Derek Brown. Like there's some good players. Don't get me wrong. Like Milton Williams is an absolute freak of nature who you're going to be able to get on day two as a sub package rusher. Like he tests very similarly to Aaron Donald athletically uh, without obviously having Aaron Donald's production or anything like that. But like as an athlete, he's that caliber guy. Uh, Davion Nixon, you know, 35 inch arms, really good athlete. Like he has potential, but he's very inconsistent. Tommy Togiai is basically like a Sharif Floyd, but not quite as good. Um, Bobby Brown has a lot of potential as like a nose tackle, but you guys already got one of those. So you don't <laughs> hey, need that. Did you say Bobby Brown and nose in the same sentence? I, oh! I know. I heard it come out of my mouth and I was like, ah. hilarious. But yeah, like there's, there's, there's some guys in this class, but in terms of ones that like I'm really gunning for, I'm just looking at my rankings right now. There's like maybe ten of them at most, like maybe even less than that. I'm kind of being generous with a couple, so maybe like eight. 
guys total that I really want. And other than that, it, it's not even like I really, really want them. It's more so just if I need a guy, I have to get one of these guys. <laughs> See, and that's a problem because, again, you're talking about a defensive line that needs to get younger and cheaper. And that doesn't make me confident in their ability to go out there and find everything they need in this draft class. So as we look at the Bills' specific situation. Should, B- we, should I tell Brett your specific situation to your mindset on defensive ends as sure. it relates to the Bills? Because this is something that I came up with after the draft last year. Okay. That when we drafted A.J. Epineza, which you hated – so Jerry Hughes has been the main staple to our defensive end group for the last six, seven years, who generally wins with speed most of the time. So because Drew has seen that, and that's the only consistent we've had over the last six, seven years with our uh, defensive ends, is players winning with speed. So when we draft somebody that's predominantly wins with power, Drew's not a fan because he's not seen that happen with the Bills. Look at Chris developing a coherent football thought. Well, I think the classic winning off the edge, you know, the dip and rip, the bend and everything like that, that's absolutely something you want, but there's very few humans that can do that consistently without having any sort of change up with power. Jerry's one of them. Von Miller's one of them. Yannick was one of them. Um, but it, it's it's hard to find a guy that is, you know, like a Dwight Freeney where it's like, I am a speed rusher. This is what I do. It, most great pass rushers that consistently put up great seasons also can win with power. And I would say there's more pass rushers that have their fastball being power than more great pass rushers that had their fastball being speed. Because when all else fails, if you have power, you can still at least go through a guy. You know, that's why Jadavian Clowney's going to play for 10 years when he's not really versatile at all. Because at worst, you use that power to crush the pocket. Quarterback can't move around, makes him uncomfortable, makes him worse. If you're a speed rusher that can't get around Makai Becton, who's also just as freaky as you are and also has length and and you can't do anything, then guess what? The quarterback's going to be a lot more comfortable because all he has to do is step two yards up and there's no hope of you ever recovering and coming to disrupt him like on a second or a third pass. Like If you have power, at least you can constrict the pocket. But if you only have speed and that fails, you got nothing. So... As kind of playing off of Chris's point here, I just DM'd you because everyone knows how much I love charts. During my COVID quarantine for 10 days, I not only accomplished all of our draft prep, but I put together a RAS, relative athletic credit to Kentley Platty, a math, at math bomb on Twitter. I put together a RAS database for every Buffalo Bills draft pick, and then a, I built a depth chart, charting uh, average RAS score, and every player that the Bills have seen fit to play at various positions over McDermott's tenure here. I just DM'd you a screen cap of the defensive line from the <laughs> group. And I want to point out something to you, Chris. Now, you say that I'm just because Jerry Hughes is what drives this. I'm a little more analytical than that. What I see when I look at our defensive groups is that the size of our defensive ends is not something they really give a damn about. It's speed and athleticism. 
You need a good three cut. Until they drafted A.J. Epinesa, he's the only outlier to this for having not great speed but good size. Everyone else is on the other side. Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison have poor size for a, for a defensive end, but great athleticism, and the Bills have seen fit to keep them around. Shaq Lawson, not great size, great athleticism for the defensive end position. Eddie Yarbrough, the same deal. You go down the list of defensive ends who've spent time here, and you see the same trend occurring. So in your mind, who are some guys in this class who you think fit that athletic mold? Well, first things first, I'm looking at your chart here, and I'm seeing a very clear pattern. When you're in an overfront, the big guys are your one technique, your nose tackle, and your base end that plays to the tight end side that can control that and just absolutely, you know, mash the run game, force everything else back inside. So your big guys on, on this chart everywhere, the great, the good, the good, it's Vernon Butler, Star Lutalele, and Harrison Phillips at one tech. And then at base end, you got okay, good, and great with Trent Murphy, Daryl Johnson, and A.J. Epinesa. Those are your big guys. Your small guys are your weak side defensive ends with his Jerry Hughes, Mario Addison, and Shaq Lawson, very poor, very poor, poor. And your three technique, Ed Oliver, uh, Jordan Phillips, Kyle Williams, Quentin Jefferson, which is poor, elite, poor, and just okay with Q Jeff. And those are all size so, grades, people. Those are just, all size Just size. Grades That's what I'm talking about. about. It's just size. So when we look at the archetype, it's not just, oh, we want small guys that are athletes. It's our weak side defensive ends are the smaller guys that have speed. Our base ends are the bigger guys that have power. Our three techs are the smaller guys with speed. And our nose tackles are the bigger guys with power, which is, I think, a very classic setup. Now, you just took AJ to be your base end of the future, assuming he works out. So you're not really looking for another one of those. But if you're looking for like a smaller, not smaller, but just extreme, you know, flamethrower coming off the edge. Now you're looking at like a Jason Owe at 30, who's just lightning quick. Um, you could potentially look at Aziz Ojolari, but I think he's more like a, a linebacker to me, so you'd have to be willing to stand him up, which I don't know if they are. Ronnie Perkins is the same way. I don't know if they'd be willing to do that. Um, Ellerson Smith is big and long and everything like that, but he's a freak athlete, so he can still fill that role. You know, there's there's not a whole lot of undersized guy in this class. Like, if, if you want to go day two, you could look at like um, – you could look at like a jo- Joseph Osai from Texas who's still learning the position, but he's super explosive. Quincy Roche out of Miami. Um, you could look at like a Malcolm Coons from Buffalo, you know, keep him in house. But again, he's more of a linebacker to me. But again, if they're willing to kind of do that stuff where, you know, your, your weak side defensive end stands up in password situations, that could absolutely work as well. So like, I think there are guys in this class that can fill that role. But I think there's fewer smaller speed rushers than there are bigger power rushers in this class overall. Here's an interesting question. Just, and I guess this fits more than, it doesn't matter what category it fits. We're having football conversation, which this is why I love you. You can go from one topic to the next seamlessly because you live and breathe this stuff. And it's why we enjoy having you on as a guest. You... You were talking on your one of your recent podcasts about how uh, Jalen Phillips, again, he's your draft crush, and you did kind of endear him to me 
watching your video over at the film room, which we're going to link in the description of tonight's show, in case anybody else wants to get a hard-on for a defensive end. Um, you mentioned that he's a better, more polished version of what uh, his teammate, Rousseau, if he had played, would have been. He didn't have the sack production, but he's more polished in terms of what he can do. And that got me thinking. Players who took a year off, like like Rousseau, they seem to have fallen down draft boards you know, <laughs> behind guys like Jalen Phillips, which probably could have happened anyway, but maybe not. Maybe Rousseau retains his job. We never see Jalen Phillips, and Jalen Phillips is a mid-round prospect. But we're also seeing it at other defensive line positions and among other position groups. Guys who took a year off whose stock is falling. If you were a GM and you're looking at this defensive line group, because there's a couple guys, especially there's some defensive tackles, there's some defensive ends. Do you discredit the tape that you saw on guys like Rousseau? Do you discredit that to a degree and do you take... I don't want to say recency bias into account, but that almost it's almost what it feels like. Or do you think that most of those guys having a year away from college football can still deliver what they could have if they had kept playing? You know, it's that's an interesting question. I think there there are some guys like Rousseau where the athletic testing was not great, where if he put together two straight years of good production, maybe people wouldn't look at those really bad jumps and cones and everything like that. And maybe they would focus more on the production side of it than the athletic uh, athleticism side of it. But the fact that we only have one year of production and objectively bad athleticism, it makes people question him overall. It's like, okay, well, is it weird that he could really only beat tight ends as a pass rusher? Is it weird that he had more success against tackles when he went inside than outside? Cause he can't bend the edge. Like, that's when all those other questions start to come up. Whereas if he had two straight years of production, people will be like, whatever, it works. We'll figure it out. Where you look at Joe Tryon, who, you know, didn't quite have like the insane production of like he had great tape, but he didn't have the production. But I think you look at his great tape and then you see how he took that year, unlike Rousseau, and completely remade his body and then tested off the charts athletically. Then people are like, okay, well, we saw what he can do when his bat when his body wasn't great. Now let's see what he can do when his body is great because it was already good before. Now we think it could be elite. So it kind of works both ways. I think um, it's it, it's kind of up to the player to determine like what they're comfortable with and everything like that. Sometimes it works out for these guys like with Tryon. Sometimes it, it goes the opposite way like Rousseau who was looking to be in the top ten pick back in August, and now I don't even know if he's going to be a first rounder. So I, I think it's a case-by-case thing. I don't begrudge anybody for sitting out this last season, all things considered. Like, well, there were yeah. a lot of reasons. And that's but. it. You can't. You can't hold that against anybody. It's just interesting to see how that might get held against them. Because recency bias, it's real. It's a thing. And we're all human, including NFL GMs. So when it comes to defensive line, <sighs> The Bills already said, hey, Quentin Jefferson, we don't need you. (laughs) We have a Vernon Butler, which is a problem unto itself. But Brandon Bean made a comment today about how with pick number 30, they're looking to the future. The way we're going to look to the future of the team rather than any kind of immediate impact, essentially, which I think is 
it's ballsy to say that now. Maybe I mean, everything that gets said publicly is a smokescreen at this point. But when I think about that, I look at in terms of defensive tackles. Okay, so we already know that whoever they draft in the first round, which is, I guess, kind of to be expected. If you're a team like Kansas City, Kansas City might have taken the, they might be the one team that's taken a pick at the back end of, let's say, 29, 30, 31, 32, that actually came in and made an immediate impact in the for the first time in the last decade. And I, we, your reaction on draft night in your live draft stream with EJ is a drop that we use constantly where you're just like, fuck it, cancel the season. <laughs> fuck it, cancel the season. You're like, no, you people who don't root against, <laughs> root in the, root against the other teams in the AFC, you have no idea what just happened. We all just got screwed. There hasn't been an immediate impact player taken in that area. So it makes sense that if you were going to draft a guy it's probably someone whose impact you don't need right away. Because if you're capable of drafting 30, you probably don't have a glaring hole somewhere in your roster. I look at defensive tackle, and I say that we could be in the market for a space eater at one tech. And we've already seen how poor our linebacker production gets when, when blockers get to the second level and disrupt Tremaine Edmonds. Like, that was a, it was a theme of 2020. That part of the 2021 defensive tackle class, guys playing in an even front who we might even maybe overdraft. Who do you like as one text for a 4-3 defense in this class? Because I know Bills fans are in love with Tyler Shelvin. Oh, I you know, he was one of the first I was going to bring up because you look at 360-pound defensive tackles from the SEC and there's nothing more Buffalo than that. I mean, for God's sake, they, they've had a lot of those over the years yeah. of, of gigantic defensive tackles from the SEC. Um, I, I, Shelvin's an interesting one. You look at um, his battle against Landon Dickerson uh, from the 2019 game, which, oh, by remember. the way, Landon Dickerson, holy shit. Uh, we, yeah. I just need I just need to, to mention him. For, he, he, he won the battle, obviously, because Landon Dickerson's amazing, but... Uh, Shelvin was one of the f- few people that Landon didn't push back. He just stalemated, which is saying something because Landon pushes everybody back. I, I think if you don't take uh, Shelvin, which there are some reasons why he might fall, like weight management and stuff like that. Like if, if you don't take him, uh, I look at like Ali McNeil. He's a really intriguing one. He, he's built like a human tree stump, really hard to dig out in the run game. Doesn't offer a whole lot as a pass rusher, but – you're not really expecting much pass rush from that position anyway. So I think he's somebody that might go sometime like late day two, early day three. Bobby Brown is the one that has probably more potential than any of the other, you know, nose, nose tackle archetypes in this class. Absolute freak athlete. He's like 320 pounds, super explosive, highly inconsistent though, which is the reason why he's going to likely go on day two and, and not when it's right it's right. Like he is, he just absolutely crushes the pocket. Uh, he disrupts uh, angles in the run game like you wouldn't believe. Like undersized centers, he has uh, he has a field day with. But again, sometimes he'll kind of run himself out of the play. Lane discipline can be kind of an issue here and there. But again, he's super physically talented. I would trust the Bills coaching staff to coach him up and get the most out of him. And the fact that you can get him on day two is a plus because you got to spend your day one pick on corner or edge most likely. 
and not defensive tackle. See, that's Chris. They have to rebuild this line cheaply because we're about to shovel out money to a bunch of different positions. There's one more guy I want to ask you about before we get out of here. Defensive end Carlos Basham. Okay, this is a guy Ooh. that I I've seen other Bills fans talk about him on Twitter, on Facebook. I've seen posts about him here and there. It's there's no one pounding the table the way you hear the top names like your Jalen Phillips, your Pay, Carlos Basham, Wake Forest, Redshirt Senior, solid production at the NCAA level. He's got a frame that might need trimming instead of building up, which the Bills have. We watched them do it with AJ Epinesa. AJ Epinesa, we were talking about it before we brought you in. He went from being a Cam Hayward style defensive end to dropping into coverage against the Indianapolis Colts in the playoff <laughs> game. And I said the same thing I'm sure Philip Rivers did, where he just went, oh, shit, check it down. I don't know what's happening. This is chaos. <laughs> and then he's, but he plays with power. And he's still a twitchy athlete, which I think would fit some of what the Bills are looking for. What do you think of him in terms of a projection to a 4-3 defense? And where might the Bills have to draft him if they want him? I mean, he would be the natural Hugh Jeff replacement, where it's like a guy who could play outside, rush inside as well. Because Jefferson, he could do it all. You know, he's he's your classic either base end or three technique. They used him more inside in Buffalo. Seattle kind of moved him all over the place when he was there. Um, Boogie, I think, compares favorably to him as an athlete. Really, really quick for his size. Again, I think you could play him as a – like you can almost rotate him with Epinesa, where he plays base end – uh, for Epinesa when Epinesa's getting a blow, but then in nickel packages you put Boogie inside, Epinesa on the outside, because uh, Boogie I think is too quick for a lot of guards to handle, and we saw that at the Senior Bowl where, I mean, these these arm over moves, people were just catching air against him. I don't know if he quite has the explosiveness to consistently win as a full-time edge rusher, but I think, again, on early downs he could play outside and then rush inside on passing downs. If you don't get him, I would look at Ellerson Smith, who's even freakier than Boogie, but he's going to go a lot lower because he went to Northern Illinois. Um, he got like a 41, he's six, seven, like a 41 and a half inch vert and like 35 inch arms. Like he's crazy, crazy oh, athlete. Chris freak athlete. Yeah. Freak, freak, freak athlete, freak athlete with a wingspan and everything. Who, 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 like loves, a who loves those guys that they think they can just make into football players. That's right. The bills. Yeah, he's he's definitely a Buffalo Bills type project. You know, the small school guy that you know never he's got the chip on his shoulder because he was under recruited <laughs> and he's a freak athlete and all that. I would say another guy who he's a big school guy, but he fits the Bills archetype of like the style of play is Jonathan Cooper from Ohio State. Uh, he's another guy that will play a similar role to Boogie, where it's like he's a base end. Uh, you can play him inside on passing downs. I, I think he's got a little bit more edge rush potential than Boogie, though, because he's got really good hips, uh, really physical hands. Again, not super elite first step, but he wins in other ways with power and, and hit fluidity and everything like that. Like he screams Buffalo to me, but you can get him way down the line. Like you'll you'll get him probably late, late, late day two, like late third round into early day three. So if you're focusing on other positions early, Jonathan Cooper is one to keep in your back pocket. There's no way in hell Ellerson Smith will be there at that point, but he might be, or Cooper might be, excuse me. So 
he's one to look for. And then, oh God, what's another one? Let me look, uh, look at my list here. Um, Rashad Weaver, I feel like they already have a bunch of guys that are basically Rashad Weaver. I don't know if they would take him. Ah, uh, man. Oh, Cam Sample would be an interesting one, too. He's a lot stiffer than Boogie, but again, he's another guy where um, base end on early downs, you kick him inside, he's way too quick for guards to handle on, on nickel downs. He, he would absolutely fit. Wyatt Hubert. Not special athletically at all. He's got T-Rex arms, but the dude's got fantastic hands and he plays his ass off. If that's in a Buffalo Bill, I don't know what is. But Chris, I, small arms. Small arms. I don't think we do those here. No, the T-Rex. <laughs> I, I mean, they, so so are, are you saying that you guys love defensive ends like uh, Pete Carroll loves corners, just unreasonably long arms? Yeah. No, and not only that, but our podcast. I mean, we, we talked about it last week, uh, our last show with uh, Russ Brown. Russ Brown. I'm the owner of a 76 and three quarter inch wingspan, and I'm 5'11. Uh, my ape index number is 1.08. Which is say. higher than Michael Phelps. It's higher than Muhammad Ali. It's higher than Chase Young. It's higher than Makai Becton. <laughs> so you must be just wicked in a street fight. Yeah. Oh, no. It's, di- it's definitely served me well over the years. <laughs> Have, having a ridiculous re- – I can almost touch my knees when I'm standing up straight. It's – and it, it, I'll tell you this. It makes buying a shirt off the rack a bitch. But I, I'll say this. You watch the way the Bills are drafting their defensive linemen, though. I know we talked about what the previous archetype was. And I like that you have the knowledge to expand on just my just caveman-style data aggregation. <laughs> That's why I love talking to you about this stuff. But it's interesting to see that the guys that they've drafted are these long-armed, stout, edge-setting kind of like just we, you have to have long arms and you have to be athletic enough to do the things they want you to do, but you have to play with a little power. They may look to fill the other side of that with some smaller speed guys because it plays so well off of the rest of what they're building. And that's what fans have to think about when it comes to pegging the word archetype. Oh, well, this is what the Bills look for. It's what they look for in one spot. It's not what they look for on the whole because there has to be a synergy across the entire defensive line. You can't have nothing but space eaters or else people just run around you. (laughs) So in that way, it's going to be interesting to see how they address this. One guy we didn't talk about, Pay. why does everyone think he's not going to be a top a top 15 pick. Cause he's got a really interesting skill set and body type. Like he's, he's built like a square, you know, he's kind of a squatty body defensive end. Uh, like he's an absurd athlete, like super explosive, everything like that. But, um, not like the, the best length I would say. Like he almost kind of reminds me of like Everson Griffin, which Everson Griffin worked out, don't don't get me wrong, you know, kind of a shorter defensive end with explosiveness. Wasn't but, he a third-round pick, though? <laughs> I think even later than that, no, to be I honest. Think, I think I remember because I think he was the guy that we they took before we took Adolphus Washington. Yeah. Really? That guy. Wow. Yikes. Uh, I You know, he's a really good run defender. Very good run defender, so I think he's at least going to get a lot of snaps early on just for that. Not all the way there as a pass rusher technique-wise, but again, the quickness, the effort, everything like that. He plays his ass off. I do think that there are 
other explosive athletes in this class that offer a little bit more length, um, a little bit more technical refinement at this point. You know, he's he's quitty pay right now is what people want Jason Owe to be in a year, which in itself says a lot. But quitty pay right now, you still want him to eventually be Everson Griffin in two years, which is a lot easier said than done. That's fair. I, I can appreciate that. I can appreciate all of this, and I'm I'm just happy that you carve time out of your busy schedule to join us for this nonsense every single year. Like we talked about, you're on the Mount Rushmore of our draft draft preview analysts because I I like that we can just sit here, shoot the shit, talk with you. We have a couple beers. What do you have going on since you're the draft guy? This next week is like your Super Bowl. What do you have going on over at the bootleg? What do you have going on over at the film room? Hit us with it. Well, I got my my first ever position ranking specials coming out. I always put out a mock draft every year, which is probably going to come out the day before the draft. That's going to probably be like a two-hour, basically full feature film of mock draft. Uh, but I have position ranking specials coming out uh, this week and into the weekend. The first one's going to be defense, where I'm talking about all these defensive line players. And then I'm going to uh, do offense and quarterback and all that kind of stuff, and then do the mock draft. So... All told, my next three videos are going to be like four to five hours total of content coming out between now and next Thursday. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a busy guy. <laughs> Brett Coleman, Bootleg Football Podcast, Film Room on Y'all Tube. He's on Twitter at Brett Coleman. This is fun. No, we did it. We didn't tear each other's heads off. Not yet. Yeah. We <laughs> the can, night ain't over. <laughs> yeah. As soon as I press stop, we can start yelling at each other. But, you know. No, I think this was good. Yeah. I think, hey, hey. We did it. Survived. Survived. Another another draft year in the books. Schofield, Waldman, Russ Brown, EJ Snyder, Anthony Prohaska. Old-time favorites. We had some new faces. It was like, I, I got to say, draft prep was fun this year. And I learned a little bit. I learned that Trey Sermon should be considered a sleeper both in the draft and depending on what team he lands with, he could be Nick Chubb 2.0 in terms of being a steal in fantasy football and dynasty leagues. I learned that the wide receiver class is a great one in terms of top end talent. And even though it wouldn't be popular out of the gate, some of the best overall values might be had by the Bills taking one in the top 60. We learned that defensive playmakers are going to be difficult to come by depending on the position you pick them at. And some of them, like if you're talking about defensive tackle, might require aggressive pursuit or just solid coaching and time to marinate, either either of which Buffalo certainly has to offer. That cornerback, maybe one of the most sensible positions for the Bills to address early, has a glut of talent at the top that would make for a solid combination with our existing talent. And there's some sneaky safety depth there that could produce our next Micah Hyder Jordan Poyer. I mean, it, this has been a fun process, and I think part of it has been just the lack of stress that we've had to have about it. Because we're picking 30th. Because our football team is good. Feels good to say that. This is how Patriots fans must have felt for the last 20 years. This feeling we all have right now. I don't want to call it indifference. It's just, you're optimistic. It's like... Chris, it's like the kid who already has a 10-speed bike and who already has a nice computer and who already has a Game Boy and a GameCube. And, okay, I'm dating myself here, but 
He already has all of these niceties. Color TV. And Christmas morning rolls around. That kid's going to walk a little slower down the stairs because he might sleep in a little bit because in his mind, he's like, well, I already got I already got a lot of nice things. Well, yeah, based on what you just said, he probably doesn't have stairs. They live in a ranch. <laughs> All I know is that I hope you guys learned a thing or two alongside us through this process. But don't worry, because our draft content is not finished. We have two shows next week. A pre-draft AFC East roundup featuring the return of the prodigal son, our Miami Dolphins correspondent and team employee... Travis Wingfield. That's going to be so much fun. I can't wait to talk to that chinless son of a bitch. And then the pre-draft summit of the smart people. That's right. We're bringing it back. Greg Thompson and Bruce Nolan are going to join us as we talk all things Bill's philosophy heading into the draft in preparation of next weekend's fireworks. This might be the most, COVID be damned, this might be the most complete month of podcasting we'll ever do, so don't get used to it, but it feels good. I'm happy, hopefully you're happy, we're going to get the hell out of here. We'll talk to you next week, guys. I'm Drew Gear. that's Chris Krueger, that's Brett Coleman, and this has been your Rock Pile Report.